0: verses 1 through 3, and then continue in Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. Isaiah 61, 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Mark 3, verses 31 to 35, speaking of Jesus. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord.
1: For those of you who have not been with us this summer, throughout the summer we studied Paul's little letter to the church at Colossae and uh, found him holding up, because of the particular problems in that church, uh, the supremacy of Christ. And he was holding up the supremacy of Christ to demonstrate the full sufficiency of Christ. There were teachers who'd come in who'd implied that You need more than just Christ, more than just the Gospel. And we talked about some of the dangers that those of us, uh, even in various parts of evangelicalism, face that were like what we saw Paul confronting there at Colossae. Last week, we took the final verses when he says farewell to the people there, and we saw a number of things about Paul, and I made the, the remark that when I think of people in the New Testament whom I would love to have lunch with, Paul is not the first one who comes to mind, uh, even though I've spent more of my life studying and teaching his letters than any other part of Scripture. But he comes across sometimes in his letters not the way that he clearly came across to those who knew him. Because as we said last week, when in Acts 20, for example, He bids the Ephesian elders farewell and tells them, all of those of you among whom I've lived and ministered will not see my face again. They wept. They couldn't bear the thought of not seeing him again. So clearly, Paul was far more winsome than he sometimes sounds in his letters. And we saw that winsomeness coming through in the final 12 verses. He speaks of 11 different people, and by name, people that he knows and is praying for. Now there is a little tiny letter in the New Testament, the only personal letter from Paul that we have and that is in the Scripture, and it's the little letter of Philemon. And I realized that um, in 45 years as a pastor, I've never preached this tiny little personal letter and it's the perfect capstone to a study of Colossians because Philemon was a member of the church at Colossae and I think this personal letter to him was carried along with the Colossian letter and delivered at the same time Uh, and so this is the perfect sort of finale because in this little letter, Paul demonstrates everything about the transformation that the gospel is supposed to make in the way that we relate to each other that he had taught in the Colossian letter here. We see Paul living it out. And so I thought this would be a good letter to look at. uh, I get to find out for the first time how it teaches, but it's, it's ministered to my heart. And I was struck by something that I had heard N.T. Wright say uh, in a lecture that he gave. He said, if we only had the tiny little letter of Philemon and nothing else of Paul's letters, we would know what we need to know about the transformation that the gospel is supposed to make. So, let's put that to the test this morning. Uh, Just before we turn there, I want to set it in context again, so if you have Bibles or just listen otherwise, I want to go back and remind you of the opening verses of our text last week when we finished our study. Paul says beginning in verse 7 of chapter 4 of Colossians, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And then here's the deal. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. And then he concludes in the second to the last Uh, verse by saying and say to Archippus see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received from the Lord. Now why do I say that? Because this letter is all about Onesimus a slave who had run away and his master Philemon a dear friend of Paul's and a leader in the church and it seems that Archippus, whom Paul warns to keep that ministry entrusted to him, was a member of Philemon's family, possibly his son. So with that as background, I will now actually read this beautiful little letter of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church, For the sake of Christ. That is an incredibly dense and difficult verse. I'm going to read it again. Verse 6, Paul says, I pray that the sharing of your faith, Philemon, may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother." because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And remember, saints in the Bible are not some special people. It's anyone who belongs to the Lord. It simply means anyone who has been set aside for the Lord's purposes. So, a room full of saints here, I I hope. (laughs) Verse 8, Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed he is useful to you and to me. His name Onesimus means useful. So Paul's making a play on Onesimus' name. Formerly he was useless, but now he's useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the Gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant. I'm going to read it for what it is, it's not, bondservants were slaves, pure and simple. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. (laughs) Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, For I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends greetings to you. And so to Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a beautiful little letter. And easy to sort of read it and say, well, that was sweet and move on. Uh, No heavy doctrine here. And yet, all the great doctrine is being acted out here. And I want to try to tease out how we can see that. Just three things that I want us to focus on. The first two, relatively briefly. Um, First, note how Paul commends a slave owner, Philemon. Secondly, note how he commends a runaway slave, Philemon. And then thirdly, look at the radical revisioning of human relationships that Paul is demonstrating. The difference that the gospel should make in our relationships. Now, I hope first to state what may seem obvious, but to drive it home a little bit. There are plenty of places in the scripture where there's a prophetic word against the rich and against oppressors. I mean, even in the New Testament, we have uh, James at the end, woe to you rich people, you who oppress others. And uh, even though slavery was universal in the ancient world, Uh, We never see Paul commending it, we rather see him trying to regulate it. And uh, as one commentator said, uh, when we see that and wonder why didn't Paul address it right then, he said that would be like telling a group of American Christians, because God created the heavens and the earth and he values the planet and we're supposed to be stewards of it, I expect every one of you who's a real Christian to get rid of your car immediately. He said, you know, we know they're dirty and they pollute, but basically our whole economy is built on our ability to get around, so what do we do? And he said, thus it was in the ancient world. Everyone of means owns slaves. And for a slave, slaves were not considered fully human. Once you were subjugated to that, you were, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Even the great philosopher Aristotle in his Nicomachean Ethics describes women and children and slaves as tools and property to be used. So this was the world into which the gospel was going. And Paul is writing to a man who is a church leader, has a church in his home, and yet who also was clearly wealthy and a slave owner. And Paul doesn't say, listen, brother, this is what you have to do and and launch into him. Paul begins by commending him. Everything positive that he knows and loves about Philemon. I mean, just listen again to that opening language. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker and his family, grace and peace from God our Father. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints and I pray that the sharing of your faith, etc., it goes and says, I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And I think of the way that we talk to each other right now in America. Uh, the Reformation is not a good place to look for the modeling of Christ-like relationships. Luther in the pulpit used the filthiest language, language that would get any pastor fired from any pulpit today in order to totally excoriate his enemies, totally scatological language. It just Filthy, in in the midst of his brilliant sermons on justification. But anyone who opposed him, anyone who opposed Calvin, was just a filthy beast, unworthy of the air they breathe. And that is not the spirit of the Scriptures or of Paul. And yet we're too close to getting back to that in our culture our leaders, the way they talk about each other. I remember in seminary reading for the first time the uh, well-known to historians of the church, the well-known debate that took place early in the 20th century at Princeton University between Benjamin Breckinridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield, one of the great theologians, and One of the great Biblical scholars, Charles Briggs, Briggs had written his magnum opus on the inspiration of the Bible. What's that about? And he really introduced and reinforced the liberal views that are in the ascendance today. And Warfield had to take him on for the sake of a Biblical view. But what so impressed me when I studied it was that Warfield opens by saying, This work is the kind of massive scholarship and brilliance and learning that we've come to expect from Professor Briggs. And he goes on for pages commending every part of that work that he can commend and congratulate Briggs for. And only having done that does he then turn and say, But on the following, I must oppose the views that he has taken, for I think that they are not faithful to the Scriptures. That's how Paul was in dealing with people that he was about to call to order. There is this incredible, passionate love and and we see why those Ephesian elders wept at the thought they wouldn't see him again. He related with such compassion and love even to someone like Philemon. And you might say, well, wasn't he just playing up to him because he was a rich, powerful guy?" No, because what's the first thing he does? Slaves that were returned to their masters were usually put to death. They were at the very minimum horribly tortured and beaten as an example to all of the other slaves never to try to do this. So imagine the risk that Onesimus is taking, having run away Having been a useless slave, obviously he was not one who even was doing his work because Paul says formerly he was useless to you. And he may well have stolen something because Paul says, look, if if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. But look at the tender way that he speaks of Onesimus. He says, he became my child while in prison. Onesimus had run away and somehow had found his way to the Apostle Paul and Paul had led him to Christ, had discipled him. He is now helping Paul and serving Paul, probably bringing him things that he needs while he's in prison. And Paul speaks of this runaway slave with the same tender affection with which he speaks of everyone else. Notice that in the end of the Colossian letter He says, I'm sending back Tychicus and Onesimus, you know, they're representing me, they'll be able to tell you what's going on here. And here he just speaks tenderly of him, listen again. He says, verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And then in verse 12 he says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him in order order that he might serve me on your behalf, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent. Now, why am I drawing this out, you may be thinking? I have had the privilege over 45 years of ministry of leading people to Christ and discipling them, and it has been an incredible honor. true confession, except for my own children. I haven't loved any of them like this. I don't, when I meet them and see them, it, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm happy. I'm great. Lord, thank you for letting me play a part in this person's life. But, and it shows that because I do have that for my children, that I haven't yet grasped The depth of this new relationship that is at the heart of this letter, and the heart of this letter, what he's saying is Philemon, you are my child. I led you to the Lord. Philemon apparently met Paul when he was away from Colossae, scholars think in Ephesus, probably met him there on business, and Paul had led him to Christ and had discipled him and sent him back to be a leader in the Colossian church. And Paul loves him and every time he thinks of him his heart is filled with joy and he prays for him and Onesimus says this is my beloved child. Now again you may be wondering why are you getting worked up about this because if we felt this way about each other, we wouldn't treat each other the way that we do. We wouldn't speak of each other the way that we do. We wouldn't have the denominational divisions that we do. Certainly, they wouldn't be personalized in the way that they are. We would see another person who professes faith in Christ and we would say, family, this is my family. And as a result, Paul, who was an apostle and who, I think think Paul was chuckling when he did this. I heard you all laugh. Um, You know, he knows, funny and knows him big time, and he doesn't mind reminding him of that, but he, he shows us this is how power and authority are wielded in the kingdom of God. He says, I could order you to do this but no, I want through love to appeal to you. Now Paul in the Colossian letter has told us, you know, that there should be a new kind of relating even in that culture where women and children and slaves were considered property of no value. He calls new relationship and he's showing us here, he says, If you're the one in power, this is how you use power in the kingdom. Through a loving appeal that gives the person the opportunity to step up and do it. And I, too often in my ministry, have not done that. I like to start there because I'm a wordsmith and I always feel I'll be able to bring them along, you know. But after a little while, if they're they're not getting it, I've never minded saying, well, okay, I don't have any more time and this is what we're going to do. You know, so, you know, salute me and I'm doing about face and go away now. But Paul, Paul is pressing in because he wants to change hearts. He wants to model something new. Husbands, do you want to have a biblical family. Most guys I know when they say that, I, that's not fair, but it just seems that a lot of guys I know when they say that just want to be what the New Testament calls an oiki despot, a despot in his home. What is leadership? How is authority exercised in the Scripture? Jesus showed it in John 13. He got on his knees, took off his robes, put on a towel washed his disciples' feet, the one thing you could never make a a Jewish slave do, it was considered so demeaning. And then afterward, when he resumed his place, what did he say? He said, you call me Lord and Master, and I am. This is what that looks like in the kingdom of God. The one in power lays aside his power and takes the position of a servant. Love one another, he would say later in John 13, as I have loved you. This is the new commandment. Don't use your self-love any longer. Use my love as a model, and my love for you is self-sacrificial. I lay down my life for you. This is what leadership looks like. Parents and children, husbands and wives, bosses and workers. Now, I know that there are Places in the midst of a dangerous world where there are exceptions to that. I see some of you in uniform. You can't, if you're a Christian in battle, say, Now, could we just have a little talk? I I want you to do this freely out of your own desire to run up that hill and take that nest. No, there are places. If you're in surgery and you're being trained, you don't say, Well, you know, what I would like to encourage you to do now is to clip that vessel. Now, I realize there are places where command is crucial to save lives. But in the ordinary living of life, brothers and sisters, we should relate differently. And I will just again press in to the culture wars. We are coming up to another election that for most of us looks profoundly depressing. I just, where are you young people? Why do I have to keep looking at candidates who are even older than I am? (laughs) Really. Um, But the way that we relate to each other in the midst of deep divisions, be principled, stand for truth, but do it in a way that will cause the other person to realize that you respect them, that you've sought to hear and understand their position, that you care deeply for them, what a difference it would make if just Christians did it. Too often conservative Christians are leading the full-throated charge and we can't do it. This is how we're to treat each other, the way that Paul does. He makes a request, not a demand. He appeals to love, not to hierarchical authority. And he tells us in his deed that we are a family. And that that's how we're to treat each other. You know what's the most important thing for you to get in the next pastor you call? Somebody who really loves you. The most important gift that you can give that pastor is to really love that pastor and his family. The greatest gift you can give to each other in this congregation is for people who come in out of a fractious fighting world to look around and see people who love each other. Not because you share all your views, not because perhaps you all vote for the same party, but because you're family and because you're family, you will love one another. The beautiful second, I think it was the second song that we sang that again points to that scene in Revelation 4 and 5. sang of, of the Lion and the Lamb, you remember that scene. John is granted this vision into the heavenlies. And on the throne God is holding a scroll sealed up with seven seals. And a voice says, who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? In other words, the scroll is God's will. Who is worthy to do the will of God? And there's a search, and they say, none is found worthy in heaven or on earth. And John begins to weep because there's no one worthy to do God's will and then. He's told, don't weep, don't weep. The lion, the conquering lion will open that scroll. And you can see John wiping his eyes and looking up, expecting to see Aslan come bounding in and take the scroll and tear it open. But when he looks, there's no lion. There's a lamb slain. Because in the kingdom of God, the only true and lasting kingdom, the most powerful thing of all is self-sacrificial love. and That is what the gospel calls us to. Any life that is not a demonstration of that is a denial of everything that we profess. And so I call you this morning. Through this letter as I call myself and encourage you through love to seek to love better than you ever have. If you're alive, God's given you some people. Start thinking about how to delight in them, how to love them self-sacrificially as you've never loved before, as I've never loved before, but as Christ has loved us every moment of our lives. Would you stand? Would you stand? Father, I thank you that you in your majestic grace have called us to the one thing that we most want of all. We confess that every one of us, however poorly we may love, Deeply desires to be loved by you and by others. And I pray that your spirit in the power of your gospel, in the strength of the new life that Christ died and rose to give us through his spirit will call us to a new love for one another and for you through Christ our King.